Assalamu alaikum, Ahlan Good morning, everybody, and a very warm welcome to the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature, and in particular to this event, which is Unconventional Journeys. My name is Julia Wheeler, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome to the stage two authors who have stories to tell about the journeys that they've made. Their adventures have been both physical, geographically from one place to another, and psychological, so journeys of the mind. Leon McCarran is a Northern Irish writer, filmmaker, adventurer, and by his own admission, a bit of a chancer. He is a Royal Geographical Society Fellow and has presented programmes for the BBC and National Geographic. Leon cycled from New York to Hong Kong, walked across China, and most recently completed a 1,000-mile circuit of the Holy Land. Malachi Talek is a Scottish writer, editor and singer-songwriter. His book, 60 Degrees North, takes us on a journey around the 60th parallel from his Shetland home across Scandinavia, Greenland, Alaska, Russia and Canada. In it, Malachi shares his impressions of the landscape and the people who call that landscape home. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your Unconventional Journeys panel. <laughs> Leon, let's begin with you, because you say in the book that it was, um, people kept saying to you, it's rather unwise to walk around the Middle East on your own. And that was sort of part of the attraction, really, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I think it's uh, always a good idea to do things that are unexpected or unusual somehow. And I mean, a lot of the motivation for this journey and, and other journeys I've done in this region in the past is to somehow look at the preconceptions that other parts of the world have about the Middle East and to see what the reality is like and see how those two things match up. And the idea of walking a thousand miles over six months through the places that I did uh, does seem unwise. But I, I had an inkling from conversations I'd had from people that I'd met that actually what I'd find there was a, not just a safe place, but a very welcoming one. Um, and the only way to really prove that was to go and walk it. So that was the idea. And you talk in the book about walking from conversation to conversation rather than place to place. Yeah, I think that's a, a really nice idea, especially in... I mean, so much of our world is complicated somehow. And rather than on this journey or any other journey, walking from one, let's say, contested land space to another or one complex area to another, really what we do when we travel is we, we, we go through conversations and through, through interactions with people. So I, I wanted to walk from story to story and from village to village and conversation to conversation and... Uh, it is very idealistic, but that sometimes you have to be a little bit naive when you start a journey like this. How's your Arabic? Um, it's, it varies. Uh, it's, it's been very good, and it's been very poor, and now it's probably closer to the, the latter of that. But, I mean, after I'd studied it for about six months before I went on this trip, and by the end of it, you get pretty good. It's full immersion. It's, if anyone wants to learn Arabic and doesn't already speak it, <laughs> take a six-month walk. It'll be, it'll be good for you. So just set out for us uh, the route that you took. Sure. So I, I began in Jerusalem, and uh, I essentially walked uh, a large lap around the Dead Sea, if you can imagine that, and finished up. The, the, the symbolic endpoint of it was Mount Sinai. and it was uh, There weren't that many, I guess, uh, recognisable places or, or sites along the way, and that was by design. There were a few, of course. I walked through Petra and through Wadi Rum and, um, and finished Mount Sinai, but a lot of the rest of it was meant to be these more remote, empty areas or, or small villages, much of Jordan, of course, uh, countryside in the north, not places that people generally tend to go to, but of 
course, which have so much to offer and tell us and all of these layers of history and culture and faith that I was looking to explore. Mm-hmm. And, of course, historically, lots of people have walked to Jerusalem, but you were walking away from that. Did that um, raise eyebrows? Well, that was the first thing I got told. As I was walking out of Jerusalem, I met someone who asked me what I was doing, and when I told him, he said, well, that's stupid. You're meant to, <laughs> you're meant to finish a journey here. Why on earth would you begin it here? Uh, and, I, and by very bizarre coincidence, I met the same man in the same coffee shop when I did finish the journey back in Jerusalem six months later and he, and he said good <laughs> well done he was waiting for you to head back Great. yeah um so Malachi I think to understand your journey we need to understand a little bit about home and your feelings for home so tell us about your relationship with Shetland well the idea for this journey came early for me when I was about 16 years old, actually. Um, And I think it it came out of the kind of complicated relationship that I had with with this place, Shetland, where my family moved when I was nine years old. And I think that that kind of age can be quite a difficult time to be uprooted and put in a new place and you have to try and make new friends. And we, I, I had grown up, before then in the south of England. So this was a a huge change from Sussex to Shetland. Um, And I hated it for the most part. I mean, I really did not feel at home um, in Shetland at all. And that feeling stayed with me, or the sense of needing to get away, of a kind of restlessness stayed with me. Um, for a very long time. And I think that the idea for this journey was, was sort of born out of that feeling of, of restlessness. And it was not until my mid to late 20s that I actually thought, you know, I could actually do this. Um, I could go to these places that are at the same latitude. And, and it's... It seemed sort of arbitrary in a way. I just had this curiosity about this, about this line that went around the world. And so I set out. I went to the first, I went to Greenland. So the first place going west from Shetland is, is the southern tip of, of Greenland. And I thought, well, I'll do that and I'll write about it. And if it feels like there's a book there, then I, I'll just keep going. Um, And so that's what I did. And of course, what should have been obvious from the very beginning, but really only became clear as I was um, working my way through the journeys and working my way through the book, was that you follow a line of latitude and you eventually end up back where you started. And so there was a similar kind of circular nature to this journey. So I started in a place that didn't, quite feel like home and ended up in a place that felt a, a lot more like home than it ever had done before. How much of an awareness is there um, in Shetland for being part of this 60th parallel? I mean, is it something that people are aware of every day or in terms of, of belonging to something bigger than the islands that they're on? Well, they're very aware of the fact um, there's a, a signpost marking where the line crosses 
the main road going north from the airport. Um, there used to be a, a newspaper that was called 60 Degrees North. I think there, there's a kind of tourist radio station called 60 North. That It gets trotted out. I, and part of the curiosity for me was that this this phrase, these words were used all the time but I didn't know anyone who knew much about the other places you know, if you go to Shetland as a tourist you will be told we are at 60 degrees north now and that's the same latitude as Greenland the same latitude as Alaska and I thought well okay but so what and so those, those other the places, Greenland, Alaska, you know, huge in comparison. Did you, when you went there, did you find that they were also aware of that latitude or it was less important? Much less important. Um, I suppose people who live... I mean, of course, these, these are arbitrary lines of measurement, latitude. But if you happen to live at somewhere that is a round number of latitude, then you probably mm. know it. People mention it. Um, the only place where people were really aware of it was in Canada, because in Canada, 60 degrees north marks the border between the, the territories in the north and the provinces in the south. So it's a, it is a literal border there. Mm. Mm. And I guess in the, the region that you were walking in, it, it's not necessarily about belonging. There are lots of divisions um, mm. by definition. And you go into it <clears throat> thinking that you want to be impartial about the... Um, the political situation, but actually found that quite difficult, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's almost impossible, but I, I, think as a, I think it's important to at least have that as a starting point. And, um, I mean, there's two things that happen on a journey like this. One is the internal process that you go through and the, the reasons that I wanted to go and explore this part of the world and my own quest for that, but also this separate desire to... Um, to see what it was really like and, and somehow present that. And I find that many things that I saw uh, on this journey affected me quite deeply, and, and I, I think it would be probably irresponsible not to also share that in the writing that I do because um, it's a human response to feel like that when, when you see something either incredibly wonderful or incredibly, incredibly sad. Uh, but it, it's, 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 a, it's a constant battle. It's, it, it is impossible to impartial at all times without just turning into a robot. Mm. So what, what particularly <clears throat> stuck with you? Well, I, what I find in a, in a very general sense is that um, these, these places do feel quite connected in so many ways. There's shared languages, there's uh, shared cuisine, so many parts of culture are so similar. And yet I would consistently meet people whose lives had been uprooted and, and disjointed by... Uh, by politics or by, by conflict, and particularly walking through Jordan. Jordan is a, a country filled with people who have sought refuge from elsewhere. Uh, so many Palestinians, of course, but as I walked, I would meet Iraqis who'd been there from 20 or 30 years ago, and I, I met so many Syrians, who'd some who'd quite literally crossed the border a few days before I did, and I, I would find them in these uh, UN-issued tents at the side of the road, um, and then I would meet more Syrians further down who were slightly more integrated into society and uh, living in villages and, and all of them had a story about uh, about being forced to flee, being forced to leave and, and finding, making a new home somewhere else, finding this sense of home but 
it's never it's never the home that you left. It's never quite the same. You can make a life somewhere, but it doesn't have that same connection. And uh, I, I mean, I, I grew up in a place in the north of Ireland which has had its own fair share of um, issues. And I mean, people like me who live in the north of Ireland have our own sense of identity crisis because we're never sure if we're Irish or British or European or whatever these days. But um, the, the more I walk through this area, you realise how fortunate we are and, and there's, there's a certain shared um, sense of, <clears throat> of identity there, but, but also, I mean, God forbid that any of us would ever have to deal with that and, um, and be forced to flee from, from the place we know. And, and so that really, emotionally, that, that hits you quite hard, especially consistently over a six-month period. Mm. Do you think growing up in Northern Ireland has drawn you to other places where you can see parallels with those divisions? I mean, is, is that part of the reason for making the journey here? Possibly. I, I remember once very, when I was quite young and I was travelling really for one of the first times and I was um, in an international airport somewhere, I can't remember where, and I was stuck in an immigration queue. I was in my early 20s and I was between two very friendly gentlemen. One was from uh, Yemen and one was from um, Somalia. And we got talking about where we were from and why we were, we were both were also bored waiting in this line. Um, and they told me about where they came from and so on. And then eventually someone asked where I was from. And I said, I'm from Ireland. And they, they both looked aghast. And, and the guy from Somalia said, but isn't Ireland so terribly dangerous? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I've, always, I've always remembered that because... So much of it's about interpretation and, and impression. Mm. And, I mean, it, there's so many connections that or perceived connections between Ireland and the north of Ireland and, and parts of the region that I walk through, and particularly the, the Irish-Palestinian connection is very strong and, and people see that. But it's also... So it's, it's an easy way and there is a certain appeal to that, but I tried not to lean on it too heavily because um, it was really only part of the reason why I wanted to mm. explore there. Mm. Um, let's talk about planning versus spontaneity. How much did you know, or you say you went to Greenland and then thought, well, if that's okay, I'll do the next bit, but how much did you, did you plan and how much did you let yourself be lost in the waves of what happened? Well, to begin with, I allowed myself to be lost in part because my curiosity about the places and the journeys were... I suppose quite unspecific. You know, I, I thought I want to know about these places at the same latitude, but I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to know. So when I set out um, to visit Greenland, I didn't really, I didn't know what my subject was. And you can't just go to a place and write about the place. You have to have particular questions and focuses and, uh, and ideas um, in order to write something coherent um, and so it took me some time to, to kind of work with what I saw and thought about on that first trip to, to understand what the questions were that really interested me about, um, about these places and from that point it became easier to kind of to plan the, the journeys that, that came after mm. that. Mm. And what about you, Leon? I mean, you, you sort of rely quite a lot on the, on the hospitality of people that you meet along the way. Yeah, I do. And I, but I think there's also quite a bit of planning has to go into it. And I, for this journey in particular, it probably took six months of 
planning, and that's because there were certainly things that I, I, I mean, very obvious things like visas and, and where you can cross borders and so on. I needed to know that. I, I needed to know... Um, I, I try to make sure I'm not going to get myself into anywhere that's dangerous or impossible to get out of. I, I block myself in where there's somewhere with no um, borders that I can cross. And as long as I'm clear on that, then the, the specifics of the route that I take will change inevitably. Mm. And I have vague ideas of where I want to go, but usually uh, when I arrive in a place, I similarly have themes that I want to follow and somehow unpick, and I'll ask around and see what the most sensible... I think the worst thing you can do, and it's a cliche, of course, but the worst thing you can do is stick doggedly to some predetermined plan that you made hundreds of thousands of miles away from where you're actually planning to go. Mm. Of course, when you get somewhere, you're going to have a much clearer idea of, of how it should be, and spontaneity is essential to that. Mm. Are you somebody who <clears throat> embraces vulnerability? Oh, I've never thought about it like that before. Uh, I mean, I certainly... I suppose in, in normal life, I don't feel very vulnerable. It's quite... We're protected from that. I, mean, I live in London most of the time, and you don't feel very vulnerable very often uh, in a big city like that with all the, the trappings and comforts. Um, and on journeys like this, vulnerability is key, and especially travelling alone, you, you, you're purposefully vulnerable. Uh, and vulnerability is often seen as... has a negative connotation, but... I see it very much as a positive thing because uh, not only does it open you as a traveller up to the places that you're going through, but I, I think it absolutely encourages people around you to, to be more willing to put themselves out and, and speak to you. People who we see a, a lone person in need, most of us will, will go and see if we can somehow uh, help them or assist them or at least talk to them. And um, So vulnerability in that sense is, I think, integral to the, the journeys mm. that I've done. I'm sure it's the same. Mm. Did, I mean, I wonder whether you felt vulnerable in a, in a different way, given the, the reasons for doing the journey. Yeah, I mean, I feel a bit of a fraud in some, in some ways because my, the journeys that I took were so much less adventurous than, than yours. You know, the, the, the things that I did that were perhaps unusual, you know, I did a lot of camping, were... were <laughs> To do, more to do with financial restrictions than, than if I could afford it, I would have stayed in luxury hotels the whole way around. But, but a big part of what I was doing was, of course, getting outside and, and walking. You know, walking has been, and as it obviously is for you, walking is kind of key to getting to know a place. For, for me, I tend to just wander around and, and, and get lost, and that's how I start to start to know, to, to, to feel like I know something about a place. But you're right, the vulnerability in my book was mostly a kind of personal vulnerability, allowing myself to ask questions of myself and not just of the place. Because I didn't realise when I started writing the book how personal some of these questions were. I didn't know it was going to be a book about home when I began. I thought it was going to be a book about other places and other, other people. And it was only as I went along that I realised actually in all of, the, all of these questions I'm asking about these other places are, are partly about me. Mm. And once you realise that, how, um, 
how happy did you feel about sharing? Happy is the wrong word, but I mean, th- th- you must have had conversations with yourself about, you know, how much mm. of it do I want to put out there and how much do I want to keep inside and for me? Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky thing because I'm not... You know, if I, if I sit down and have a conversation with somebody, I, I'm not... I tend not to share <laughs> huge amounts of personal information. I'm not that... I'm just not that kind of... I'm, I'm quite a private person. You're not all over Twitter and Instagram. Well, I, I exist there, but I don't give <laughs> that much away. Um, and I suppose with writing, you, f- you always feel you have a, a kind of control over what you're giving away, over what you're saying. But at the same time, it was necessary to be... To ha- a controlled vulnerability, I suppose. Um, when I wrote drafts of, of some of the chapters and shared them with with my agent and another couple of people, they said, "You know, you're not present enough here. You're you, f- you feel a bit like a, a ghost." And and they just said, "You need you need to try a bit harder to." To, to be present within the chapters and to... But, but there's a potential tension there between what you want to put out there and what your agent and publisher thinks this will mm. sell. Well, Isn't there? Of course, yeah. And it... I think in the end, you know, in terms of proportion of this book, there isn't that much of me there. But at the same time, people who had known me for years read the book and said, I didn't... I didn't know that. You never spoke about that. Mm. And there was something... I'm not going to... You know, it, it didn't feel cathartic or anything like that. But there was something about writing about grief, for instance, about the death of my father, that felt important once I started doing it. It felt necessary. And I was glad that I had done it. So, when you're writing, I mean, there's a lot of you in in your book. Are you conscious of now that you've got a couple of books under your under your belt of having to be this person that's sort of that adventurer and a bit of a chancer and and so on out there? You've kind of got to almost keep ratcheting up what you're what you're going to do. I actually feel the opposite. I and I've always I've always felt slightly uncomfortable with. Uh, and I mean, and I, I self-identify with this term adventurer because I, I struggle to find anything else that sums it up. And you, you need to have something to put on a business card these days, it seems. But, <laughs> but I, I've always, I've always felt that there's the word gets misunderstood quite a lot, and uh, and there's this sense that adventurers and explorers have some predetermined inner strength, and you know they're fearless and they're uh, they're brave and and they can go off and do all, all these great things very easily. And I never really felt like that. I, I find these journeys to be very difficult and, uh, and quite stressful at times. And, you know, I never feel like I'm just inherently good at this, you know, tough adventure stuff. And I, I only walk and, and cycle and, and whatever because it feels like the most sensible way to see these places and to let me go slow. And if, if there isn't another easier way that involved less blisters and, um, and sleepless nights and tents, then I, I might well take that. 
but it, I mean, the, the journey part becomes a, a key part of trying to tell the stories that I find along the way. Um, and I suspect that'll be the same in, in future things that I do. But uh, the first book that I wrote was about riding a bicycle across North America, and it was very much a, a, a rite of passage story. It was a, me as a young man realizing how much I didn't know um, and making all sorts of terrible mistakes, but having this wonderful experience and finding the hospitality and generosity of strangers. And, and I think I've... I've plateaued a little bit. I have not. I don't learn as much about myself on journeys anymore. Uh, there's always a little bit of growth, of course, but mostly it, I just try and have enough of myself there and the, the mode of travelling, unconventional as it may be, to to give this uh, give this platform for everything else. Mm-hmm. Can you give us some idea of the the sense that walking gives you? Because you're you're entertaining in the book about you know <coughs> with your companion Dave you know you sort of say sometimes walking it's a bit rubbish yeah sometimes walking's terrible um, but what it, what is it and and how far into the journey do you start to get a rhythm and how does your mind then change from from that point well one of the great things about doing something walking is so simple I mean it it, uh, it shouldn't qualify as an adventure to go for a walk um, but yet if you if you uh, if you use it as a way to get from one place to another place that's very far away, uh, it's, it's, it's not something that we're used to doing. We're, we're used to much faster modes of transportation. And, and so you, you have a lot of time to process. And what I love about it is that I, I find extremes of emotion and experience in, through walking that I don't find in everyday life. I, I feel like when I'm at home in London, going through the motions of normal things, I'm rarely incredibly happy or very sad or very moved by anything. Everything is, is sort of somehow in the, the middle. Um, and on a journey like this, I think partly because of that, the physical endeavour required, but also all of these uh, external influences each day, I reach these, these peaks and, and troughs, and, uh, and that's wonderful. I mean, it, it's, it is very vulnerable. It's, it's exhausting at times, but uh, sometimes you just feel in a very simple sense... Walking is this beautiful, simple way of traveling, and it isn't so beautiful to be connected to the land and feel how a mountain grows out of nothing and all this sort of stuff. And at other times you think, this is just the worst idea I've ever had, and everything hurts, and I wish I could just get in a car. Um, But I I would much rather have that than not. Mm. Mm. Tell us about your um, experiences walking and and how that feeds into your your writing and... um, the, the, in fact, how much you are thinking and how you then transfer that onto the page, because they're two very different activities. That's a big question. Um, well, like I said, the the process is pretty simple in that I go to a place and I just start wandering. wandering. Um, I don't refer too much to guidebooks or anything like that I just go where my feet take me and um, see what what seems interesting what happens I find to begin with is that I just let my mind wander and what I was interested in partly in the book was about where my mind wandered to and why that 
might be. Because what I was trying to think about was the connection between people and places, between people and landscapes. And in part, that's about the way that certain places and landscapes have influenced cultures, why particular cultures have developed in particular areas. But also it's on a more individual level about how we respond to certain places and, and why we respond in those ways. You know, we all have visited a new place and had some kind of emotional response, whether we feel unexpectedly at home in this place we've never visited, or we feel slightly uncomfortable on and on edge. And I guess I was trying to interrogate those feelings. What is it that's making me feel like that? Mm. So you talk about, as well as people... Um inhabiting a landscape, actually a landscape inhabiting people. And on Shetland, that's the hill. Mm. Um, but so when you, were, um, when you were making your journey, did you within that find a difference between the people who had always grown up in that landscape and the newcomers who came in and made it their home? In a, in a general sense, perhaps you could say that I think I think it's very possible for people to move to a new place and to become truly at home and truly connected to that place but it requires more in some ways it it has to be deliberate that you have to be trying to make yourself at home and So perhaps it is more unusual amongst a population who have arrived than it is amongst people who have grown up there and for whom the landscape is just part of the way they think. And almost take it for granted. Yes. But the taking it for granted, I suppose, can have the opposite effect, Mm. perhaps. Well, because they're less committed. I think if you grow up in a place, sometimes you find it harder to consciously understand what is special and particular about that place, whereas somebody who comes in can maybe see it straight away. So there are these slightly different um, tensions and uh, amongst the people who've lived there all their lives and the people who have arrived. And certainly there are particular places where... Um, you maybe have high numbers of, of people who are only there temporarily and that there's, no, there's no need for them to, to feel at home or connected mm. to a place. And I guess that's what the, a lot of the people that you met, potentially there temporarily, potentially hoping to be there temporarily and actually not having moved through choice as other people in your journeys had. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the sense of belonging and and what constitutes a home is a, a question that I find everywhere and, and something that I guess everyone can identify with. And I, mean, I think this is the wonderful thing about your book as well, is that I, anyone who travels often seems to 
view their own home in a, in a different way. And I certainly find it, I, I've always felt quite connected to where I grew up, but the further I go away from home, the more I feel very attached to that very specific spot where I, I grew up in Ireland. Mm. Um, and I, and I'm constantly interested, or consistently interested in uh, how other people view it, and particularly, as you say, when people have been forced elsewhere. Mm. Uh, how does that affect what you think of as... The, the, I mean, and home is not just a physical place, of course, it's, it's the people around you. And I, I heard this from some of the... Uh, some of the people I met in Jordan, uh, one family of Syrians, said that uh, they missed their home, they missed their city, but they had enough people who had come with them. They came as a group, that they were still surrounded by the same people who'd lived on their street previously. And so in actual fact, that was more important to them, in one sense, than being able to return to their, mm. their street in Aleppo. So there was a, like a sort of emotional <laughs> geography had been lifted and... And moved almost. Yeah, and uh, the, the sort of maps that we have that show contour lines and roads and everything else, they, they're wonderful. They show us how to get from one place to another, but they, they don't show us... Uh, there's a lot that they don't show about um, all of these things we've been talking about, the different layers of maps that people have and, and emotional connections to that as well. Mm. There's lots of different ways in which we can map out a, so, okay, so tell me then, what, so what's on your emotional map? Well, I mean, it, when, when I made this journey, I found that the things that stuck in my mind were not necessarily road junctions and gas stations and, you know, other things that you might find. It was, it was conversations. So I would remember very clearly the, in, in, in the middle of Jordan, there's a, a city called Kerak, which is quite big, quite well-known, and I, I was heading there, and that would be a, a big place on a, a regular map. But Has anybody been there? Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, but on my way there, just outside the city of Kerak, on the, the north side, as I was heading south, I was trying to get there after a very long day of walking, uh, and the sun was just going down, and I wasn't sure if I'd make it in daylight, but I really wanted to get there so I could sleep inside rather than being in my tent. And in a very nondescript part of the landscape outside of the city, there's just a couple of homes. I saw this man come out of his house and he watched me walk past and I could see that he was suitably bemused by my stumbling through. Uh, but he came over and introduced himself and asked me what I was doing and, and essentially just said, come in, you silly foreign person, and let me look after you. And, and brought me into his home and uh, gave me some food and gave me a place to stay for the night and... Uh, and then he asked me if, if I would mind if him and his sons washed my feet because they must be so sore after such a long journey, uh, which is just a remarkable thing for anyone to offer to anyone, let alone a complete stranger. And especially if someone who's walked a few hundred miles, my feet were toxic and I was very concerned I might kill this poor kind gentleman. But anyway, we went through this, this kind of ritual washing of feet and, um, and I, I stayed there the night and the next morning I set off and uh, knowing that I'd probably never see this guy again. Of course, we exchanged details, but that, that wasn't really the point. And so my, my map of Jordan, there's the city of Kerak, mm. which is a wonderful city, but that's not what I remember. I remember this little point yeah. and Mahmoud and this... Yeah, forget the castle. We've got the yeah, that, yeah, that's the key point in my map. Yeah. Were there moments, I'm sure there were moments of kindness that stick in your mind? Yeah, I, I mean, actually, in some ways, a, a similar... Uh, 
they didn't wash my feet, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I remember sitting, I was in Greenland, I was in a very a small village in, in Greenland, and I, you know, the, one of the things about this journey for me was that quite a bit of it, it was, it was quite lonely. You know, traveling on your own can be quite lonely, and you're, you're speaking to people occasionally, but they're often quite superficial conversations because you only meet people for a short period of time. And I was just sitting on the, the waterfront um, in this little village in Greenland, and this couple came and sat down on the bench next to me, and they said, would you like to come back and have a, a meal at our house? And it was just exactly the right moment again where I, I felt I needed this kind of company and this sort of welcome. Um, and, and so it was really quite, quite moving. Mm. Let's talk about um, destinations, ends and, and arrivals and so on. When you come back to Shetland, um, you arrive by boat and you talk about how there's a difference. To, when we land in Dubai, we land and we know, bang, well, not bang. Um, <laughs> uh, we touch down beautifully, gently. Um, uh, and we know that we've arrived, whereas on a boat, it's not, it, it's not quite so clear-cut as that. Yeah. I mean, part of the reason I like travelling by boat is that you get a sense of distance that you don't get on a, on a plane. You know, if you, if you go to Shetland, you can fly from Edinburgh in an, an hour and 20 minutes, something like that. So you're, you're there quite quickly, and it feels much closer than it actually it is, which is 200, 250 miles north of Aberdeen. So going on a boat that takes... 12, 14 hours gives you a, a much more of a sense of, of that of that sort of a distance. But the sea is interesting too in a cultural sense because these days we tend to see it as a, as a barrier whereas historically the, the sea was exactly the opposite. The sea was how people got around. So people now tend to view somewhere like Shetland or in any island really as remote or cut off. Whereas in fact, if you lived in Shetland, it was much easier to get around than it mm. was if you lived in the middle of Scotland, say, where you had to walk or get on a horse or something mm. like that. You know, in Shetland, you just get in a boat and you could be in Norway or you could be in Scotland. And so seafaring people have a, a very different relationship. To, mm. to the water. Mm. Oh, I think that's something in this region as well with the, the Gulf it would have been, yeah. Um, I'd really like to give you a flavour of um, both these books. So if you're happy to both read, um, mm. Maliki, perhaps if you'd like to go first. Um, we, touched on, we touched on a little bit of danger, but there's, there's danger here too. Well, I definitely would not put Adventurer on my business card. <laughs> <laughs> um, as I said... <clears throat> If, if I could afford it, luxury would be the way I would travel. <laughs> um, and so I read this piece, and, cause it, and, it, and it gives a sort of uh, false view of the book in some ways. This is a, a moment of, of fear and, and feeling like I was in, in danger. This is in Alaska. And in some ways I did 
find Alaska to be a place where I felt slightly on edge. And I, I wonder if that's because the landscape is so different from what I'm familiar with, so imposing in many ways. But th- this part was... I decided to go fishing one afternoon and, and to get to where I wanted to go required a walk through the forest on my own. And so that's, that's what's happening here. As I took those first steps on the trail and into the forest, the fear rose quickly in my throat. Moving between thick, new-growth trees with visibility down almost to zero, I could feel my heart beat harder. My fear was complicated and confusing, but as I walked, the thump in my chest found its focus in one simple word, bear. With fishing rod, tackle bag and waders in my hand, I felt clumsy and vulnerable, and I stopped almost immediately to rearrange my luggage. The pair of waders was flung over my shoulder together with the bag, In one hand, I held a fishing rod, and in the other, I gripped my fingers around a canister of bear spray just inside my jacket pocket. I checked that I could remove it easily and quickly. I set my index finger inside the looped safety catch. I focused my eyes and ears on the forest. Pepper spray is pretty much the last resort when faced with a brown bear. Ineffective at a distance of more than a few meters, it's useful only when you're being charged. And if you're being charged by an animal that can be more than eight feet tall when standing, 600 kilos in weight, and which can run as fast as a horse, it's important that the spray is successful. (laughs) If it's not, your only possible chance of escape is to play dead and hope the bear loses interest. If you're lucky, it might paw you for a moment, perhaps breaking your limbs in the process. If you're not lucky, you won't have to pretend to be dead for very long. (laughs) The best way to avoid such an attack, I was told, other than to remain indoors at all times, is to be noisy. Bears become angry when they're surprised or threatened, and as a rule, they'll stay away from people given the opportunity. Many hikers wear a bell to alert animals to their approach. Others simply shout or sing as they go. Somehow, it feels odd to confront your fears in this way, to let the danger know you're coming. I wanted to sneak through the trees unnoticed as well as unscathed, but I followed the advice I'd been given, and I tried to sing. As the trail rose into old-growth forest and the sound of the highway was lost behind me, I could feel the presence of the bear, like a ghost among the trees. The space was haunted by it, as was I. Beneath the canopy of leaves, a whole array of spirits seemed to dwell. Invisible insects clouded my face, and birds moved unseen above. Even the trees themselves were somehow not unmoved by my steps. The whole forest seemed aware and held me with an attention that was mirrored in my own vigilance. The singing didn't last for long. Somehow no words felt right and the sound of my voice was alien and intrusive. My mouth became dry and useless and I took instead to humming both random tunes and familiar melodies, some of them ludicrously out of place yet still strangely comforting. 
I imagined myself from the outside, a man alone, walking fearfully through an Alaskan forest, laden with fishing tackle, humming Mr. Tambourine Man as loudly as he could manage. Surely a bear would be more likely to laugh than to attack. After ten minutes or so of hiking, something made me pause and turn my head. I stood still and listened. My breath was loud and my heart thumping. But another sound, too, broke the forest's silence, a rhythmic pounding like feet or paws running in my direction. I turned to where the noise came from and looked out among the trees. It could have been a few seconds only between hearing the animal and seeing it coming towards me, but in that brief time I'd imagined in detail what was to come. The beat of my pulse had fallen in time with the thud of the four approaching feet. The spray had been lifted from my pocket and gripped tightly around the top. I had steadied myself in anticipation and in regret. And then, there it was. Ah. <laughs> Malachi will be signing his books afterwards. <laughs> Good cliffhanger. Um, so, Leon, let's talk about the sort of retrospective nature of clarity, if you like, about motivations and what you saw and, um, and, how, and how actually you kind of need to get to the end of a journey in order to understand it. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no bears, no more bears. We're, we're done. <laughs> um, but I... So this is a, just a, a very short section from towards the end of my book. And uh, we talked a little earlier about how arbitrary destinations can be. And, I mean, that's often a, a good way to design a journey. You need to choose a start point and an end point somehow. So uh, it's, if, if they're arbitrary, that's absolutely fine. It's what happens in the middle. But um, on this journey in particular, I find myself constantly wondering where it was that I was going to and if I'd even be able to get there and, and so on. And it was meant to be a continuous journey, but of, of course, given the geography, there were these little breaks and, and everything else. So this was, uh, this is as I'm about halfway through the, the Sinai Desert on my way to Mount Sinai and uh, been walking with a couple of Bedouin companions and a camel for uh, about a week at this point and starting to see the end in sight and um, starting to allow myself to wonder what, what it all means. The journey as a whole had no doubt been a disjointed one. Yet with the end in sight, I could now see connections much clearer than the divisions. These were lands that were intrinsically linked physically, culturally and historically, and even contemporary geopolitics could not diminish that. Migration routes and trade routes and pilgrimage trails and Bedouin paths and hiking trails all worked to create unavoidable thoroughfares, much more powerful than any paved highway that channel travellers through the identities and faiths and ethnicities, ethnicities of the area we call the Holy Land. In my head, I was building up a map of the journey, but not one that was based on landmarks. Instead, I had a representation of the walk through the faces, conversations, and act of, acts of kindness. To walk is to meet people on their level, face to face and shoulder to shoulder. 
And it serves more powerfully than anything else that I've found to highlight a shared humanity among all. The time in Sinai had instead become an experiment in slow living. Our group adhered to a basic routine, and the days took a similar pattern. In this way, I felt I could travel forever, combining the calm predictability of the Bedouin schedule with the opposing and inherent fickleness of a long journey, where the only certainty was constant change. In the past, I had reached the end of lengthy voyages, desperate for the end, but not this time. Thank you very much. The only constant is change. That's something that's in our hearts, really, isn't it? So I have a question for each author, if that's okay. And um, good morning, gentlemen. Um, Leon, I wonder if you were uh, inspired by writers like Wilfred Thesiger, Mabarak bin London, who's incredibly famous in these parts. And of course, there have been many other explorers. And um, the question for Malachi is totally different. It is, um, were you inspired to write more songs as a result of your travels? Okay, let's begin with Leon then. So are you conscious of being in other people's footsteps? Sure, yeah. I'd, I'd like to answer the second question as well. <laughs> um, uh, I was. I mean, there's, this is a, um, a landscape that I, I quite often think of as just being carved by footsteps of all of these various people who walked there before, and, um, and that includes the, those who've travelled from elsewhere and, and written about it. And uh, people like Thesiger, of course, I was very aware of. I mean, a few years before this, I, I made another journey across the empty quarter from Salalah to here in Dubai. And that was another journey of a thousand miles that was much quicker than this one. And that was very much following in Thesiger's footsteps and, and looking at how the Arabian Peninsula has changed in the time since he was there in the 1940s to when I walked it in 2012. Um, and I mean, the, the summary of that experience was that it has changed, of course, in so many ways. Dubai was a fishing village when Thesiger was there compared to now. But, but the things that he loved the most about it, the, the, the huge empty spaces, the, the, uh, the asceticism of lifestyle in the desert and the, the kind, what he describes as the kindness and generosity of desert peoples is still very much there. So it, those writers and that, that sense of people and place is very much in my mind. We will ask you about your music choices in a minute, but let's let Malachi answer that question. Well, the simple answer is... Uh, no, it did not inspire me to write more songs. Um, I actually, I used to write far more music when I was younger. And I suppose part of the reason I, I do that less now is, is simply to do with most of my writing time and my writing brain goes on working on books. And I tend to find then that I... I, I don't have that bit of me left that wants to sit down and, and write a song. So I, I write far fewer now than I used to, unfortunately. I think that the music, though, does feed in to the, to the prose writing. And it's something I feel very strongly about in, in prose is, is the rhythm of it. It's something that I work on a lot, trying to get prose that feels like it, it moves rhythmically, rhythmically and, and almost musically. Um, and 
it's a much more complicated kind of rhythm, I suppose, than, than I was used to with, with writing songs. But I, but I think that that kind of writing certainly now feeds into this kind of writing. Do we need to add singer-songwriter to your adventurer on the card? No, no, absolutely not. Uh, but, <laughs> but the only thing I will say is, uh, with, um, without having all of the wonderful talent that you do for this sort of thing, I, this did, I grew up playing music, and journeys like this have... I, I started travelling without instruments and without music and really missed it, so now I always take a, an Irish tin whistle with me on my, on my journey because it, it's this connection to home as well, but it's also the connection to music, which is something really important, and it's a wonderful icebreaker to start playing a, a silly little Irish instrument when you meet someone in the middle of a desert. On the other hand, a guitar is a terrible instrument to travel with. <laughs> <laughs> it's far too big. There's a question here, yeah. Yeah, mine's a very practical one. Um, so if you weren't obviously staying in luxury uh, hotels and often you're camping, how do you make a record of your journey? Especially when you're walking, I guess your, your thought processes, um, especially if you're solo, how do you, how do you, when do you do your writing? Is it as a looking back or do you scribble away under torchlight when you're looking up at the stars? Um, yeah. Well, Thank you. I wrote both at the end of each day, I would sit down and empty my head, I suppose, everything I could remember. But I find that that isn't good enough to get the kind of detail that you need to make the, the prose come alive. And so I would have to be stopping regularly through the day to, to make notes. Um, just it, It's the details that you need to catch at, at the moment, the, the the general impressions you can get later, but the, de- the details you forget. And so stopping to write down, like stopping at a cafe or wh- whatever just to, to write it down, or if that's not possible, I would sometimes just record um, audio files into my phone or something, just any- anything that caught my attention, I would make sure and, and record it in some way. Leon, what about you? Yeah, I think there's no there's no science to it, um, and I do it different ways each time. But I, I normally have a, a notebook in my pocket because you're absolutely right. If you there's certain things that if you miss them, you'll never be able to recapture exactly how that felt and and how that felt or was experienced at the time, which is often very different to how you think about it a week later. Um, and so I, I would do that, and I would I would often I mean, not on a, a set schedule, but when it felt like I'd finished a a significant or, or important chunk of the journey or reached somewhere, I would then try and write everything again and, and get a sense of how that phase had felt, uh, both separately and in relation to everything else. Um, and then you come back and, and read it all again and put it back together. But it's, it's a variety of those different methods of capturing it. 